0: We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is P.A. Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Thomas Carhart discusses his book, Lost Triumph. Tom Carhart, author of Lost Triumph, Lee's Real Plan at Gettysburg, and Why It Failed. How long have you been interested in the Civil War?
1: All my life. (laughs) I first read about... uh the Civil War when I was a teenager. In fact, I first read about the Battle of Gettysburg when I was 16, in 1960. And even then I was confused by Lee's seeming battlefield magnificence, both before and after Gettysburg, when he thrashed everyone he came up against, and his utter failure, his his really dumb move on on day three of launching Pickett's Charge by less than 20% of his troops against the heart of the Union defenses while the rest of his, his forces sat and watched. And that was so unlikely, I couldn't understand it.
0: Just uh, for, for uh, your your book has a subtitle, Lee's Real Plan and Why It Failed. Just for the uh, purposes of discussion, what is traditionally thought to be Lee's plan? Traditionally, it is thought that, that, cu-
1: that Pickett's charge was launched alone, unsupported, against the heart of the Union defenses uh, by thirteen thousand men, while well, the other fifty thousand did nothing, but watch, and was bloodily repelled. And, and you know, <laughs> it, it was it was a disastrous uh, attack that had a profound effect not only on the battle but on the entire Civil
0: War. And when you decided that there was something wrong with this, how did you proceed to turn it into a book? Well, I've I've, I've only I've, I I didn't really decide to turn it into a book until
1: I was researching my dissertation uh, in the Library of Congress uh, about uh, 12, 14 years ago. And my dissertation was on a 19th century military topic and I happened upon a map that Lee had at his disposal which was drawn by a man named Hotchkiss. Now, the normal battlefield maps of Gettysburg show only the Union defenses along Cemetery Hill, south the cemetery ridge about two miles a little round. south cemetery ridge to little round top and then hooking around to the east to terminate about a mile terminate on culps hill and from above it has the shape of a giant fish hook there was another smaller battle that occurred on the third of july about three miles east of the town of gettysburg it is remembered simply as the battle on east cavalry field between jeb stewart and uh, David McMurtry Gregg was the division commander of Union Cavalry there, but the primary unit was a brigade of 1800 Michigan Cavalry under George Armstrong Custer. Now, all maps since 1965, let me back up. At the, at the, at the south end of East Cavalry Field is Hanover Road, which runs northwest into the town of Gettysburg and does not uh, uh, go behind the Union lines at all. So that was it would have been an, of no value to the Confederates. I have often wondered how Lee could have tried to turn the Union flank, because that's always what he did. That's a Napoleonic tactic. The, the Napoleonic tactic that, that Lee modeled very carefully all his life was to make a frontal attack, a pinning attack, to freeze the enemy in, in place, and then to make a turning attack around one flank or in the rear, what Napoleon called the Manoeuvre sur les derrière which he used 90% of the time, which always over overwhelmed the enemy. Lee did this as a captain in Mexico when he was uh, only an aide, uh, an aide to Winfield Scott, the Army commander, but he went and made the reconnaissance personally and planned the attacks. He did this at Cerro Gordo, one of the major first major battles. Uh, he did it again at Pedregal, uh, 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 an open uh, lava field protected by the the Forts of of, uh, San Augustine and San Antonio. And uh, he did it again in the Civil War, particularly at the Battle of Second Manassas, which was a classic Napoleonic, uh, collapse of the Napoleonic fan of multiple units coming together and hitting the the Union force from front and rear and, and side. And then he did it again at Chancellorsville, which was probably his greatest victory, where he sent Stonewall Jackson around the Union right wing with more than half of his force and they collapsed the Union right wing. So that was his standard battlefield tactic. And I was trying to look at a way that he could have done that at Gettysburg. The only practical way, I thought, was to use his cavalry because he sent his cavalry out for unknown reasons, three miles east-northeast of town on the York Pike. And they, they arrived at Crest Ridge, uh, 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 North-South Ridge, out there, and they hid in the woods and fired signal cannons around 11 or 11:30 to inform Lee that they'd reached their position, and then they did nothing but, let, but, but stay in place. And I, I thought there must have been some other order that they were following, but when you look at the map of Gettysburg that includes East Cavalry Field, the area south of East Cavalry Field, south of Hanover Road. There's a there's a large lake about two miles long and a half mile wide that covers that area known as heritage lake and, and it and it is obvious that Stewart couldn't have got past that lake I discovered when I saw Chambliss's map by accident That when Lee was here during the Battle of Gettysburg, there was no lake there It was instead a road called Bonneytown Road and when I saw that and it went Southwest about almost two miles and intersected with Baltimore Pike the Baltimore Pike is a paved road that ran northwest behind Culp's Hill and into the heart of the Union defenses. That was their logistical trail. They're, they're, they're the only open door into the Union rear. When I saw where Stewart's cavalry was poised a couple of miles above this, a mile above Bonnetown Road, and it became obvious to me that Lee intended this to be one of his, at least one of his flank attacks, and the scales fell from my eyes, and that was my aha moment. And then I began to research further, and I found that during the night of 2 to 3 July, after the, first, the second day of battle, Lee had also reinforced the Confederate force at the bottom of Culp's Hill, the barb of the fishhook, from three brigades to seven brigades, about 10,000 men. On the 3rd of July, he had intended their, them to attack Culp's Hill at the same time that Longstreet attacked. But they got into some preliminary fighting with Union troops who came back during in the early hours of the morning, and there were a couple of brigade-on-brigade brigade fights that, 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 that were confused during the morning. And then at, at about 9.30, Ewell got a message from Lee to pull back, to not fight, to wait for Longstreet's attack, and then to launch his attack. But when Longstreet's attack was launched, uh, Ewell did not launch his attack by his seven brigades, his 10,000 men. Culp's Hill was defended by three Union brigades, about 3,000 men, because unit, Union units are a little bit smaller than Confederate unions. And, and I didn't understand that, but when I identified the possibility of Stuart coming up the Baltimore Pike, he would have come in behind Culp's Hill, and it became instantly obvious to me that 6,000 horsemen screaming the rebel yell ride galloping past the rear of Culp's Hill uh, in much the way that Napoleon used buglers and, and noise to terrify the Austrians at the Battle of Arcola. Uh, that would have been the vehicle to precipitate the attack. That was the, 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 the trigger that Ewell was waiting for before he launched his attack, the arrival of the cavalry in the rear of the Union Army, Now, in, a, in the rear of Culp's Hill. In addition, Lee, Stuart arrived on July 2nd uh, with three brigades of cavalry, which he'd used to ride around the Union Army. A lot has been made of his absence, and indeed Lee said later that he was much embarrassed by the lack of cavalry at Gettysburg what he means by that was stuart personally because when they crossed the potomac lee allowed stuart to take three brigades and ride around the union army as it occurred but he kept four brigades with him he left those of jones and robertson at the potomac crossing he took imboden and jenkins with him imboden had been sent off into the pennsylvania countryside to round up livestock and and jenkins stayed with with lee jenkins jenkins unit was about 1200 Horsemen who had been raised in what was to become West Virginia, who were really mounted infantry. They were armed with the 1859 Enfield rifle and sword bayonets, and their their use was to use horses for transportation, then to dismount and fight as infantrymen with these infantrymen's weapons. They didn't carry sabers or or carbines as normal, normal cavalrymen did. And when I realized that on two on three July. Lee sent Stewart's three brigades out the York Pike with Jenkins' brigade, the only cavalry brigade he had at hand. All of his cavalry went out to Crest Ridge. There must have been some use for Jenkins' brigade since they're not traditional cavalry. And then, again, the scales fell away and I saw that he would have ridden up behind Culp's Hill, dismounted Jenkins' brigade, and in the the event there were only about 1,000 men from Jenkins' brigade that that went out there under Lieutenant Colonel Witcher.
0: Uh, for, for, for people who have a hard time visualizing sure. all this, you, you have a map in your book. Let me get sure. you to, to, uh, to look at the map and just point out where the, some of the things are that you This you're is the fishhook
1: of the Union defenses from Little Round Top, north to Cemetery Hill, hooking around to Culp's Hill, the barb of the fishhook. Looks like a giant fishhook. Conf- Lee's Confederate Army, though considerably smaller than the Union Army, was arrayed around that fishhook. During the three days of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union commander, Meade, never took any offensive action. And clearly, he was intimidated by, by Lee's myth of invincibility because Lee had defeated, before Meade, he had defeated sequentially McClellan, Pope, Burnside, and Hooker. And only as the Union Army of the Potomac entered Pennsylvania on June 28th was Hooker relieved of command and Meade promoted to be the commander, something he never, neither sought nor wanted. So when he arrived in Gettysburg, he, he hunkered down and, and hastily dug defensive positions and took no offensive action what, whatsoever. Now, uh, that gave Lee... Lee knew the, who he was fighting. He knew the men in the Union Army because he'd served in the Union Army. He knew Meade well. And he realized that Meade was not going to tr- come around either of his, of his flanks, so he sent all of his cavalry about three miles out the York Pike, away from Gettysburg. Then they came down onto Crest Ridge and set up in the woods here and waited at a signal which i'll get to later they were to come down east cavalry field cross hanover road which goes up to gettysburg and come down the bonnetown road which is now uh a lake it's lake heritage a man-made lake since 1965. then they'd have turned up behind baltimore come up the baltimore pike behind copes hill jenkins men would have dismounted a thousand confederate riflemen would have attacked these three thousand union riflemen from the rear, while the 10,000 attacked it from the front, and then have quickly rolled up the Union right wing. The other 5,000 horsemen would have ridden across the fishhook and attacked the clump of trees from the rear, while Pickett's men attacked it from the front. The result would have been the division of the Union army into in half, in sections, and then Lee would have proceeded to defeat it in detail. He would have done this by turning Pickett's and Stewart's forces north to roll up the left flank of this half of the Union Army, while while Jenkins and Ewell were rolling up the right right flank, he'd have used Rhodes' division, Early's division, two brigades of Pender's division, and three brigades of Anderson's division to attack the the hook of the fish hook frontally. And the Union Army, up here, attacked from the rear and front with no place to run, would have quickly surrendered. Another thing he did is that he brought artillerymen, although he'd left several batteries back on Seminary Ridge, he brought the artillerymen with him. And what that would have done, the Union Army and the Confederate Army used the same cannon. There were about 50 cannon on Cemetery Hill and 20-odd down here around the clump of trees. What he would have done, they're firing from west to east, the Union cannon. The artillerymen are deafened by the noise, covered with smoke. And when they're approached by 5,000 howling banshee Confederate horsemen from the rear, they carry no sidearms because they're behind Union arms. They'd have been quickly killed or driven off, and then three or four... Confederate artilleryman, which is all it took to operate a gun, would have dismounted, lowered the muzzles, and fired canister into the rear of the waiting Union infantrymen, which would have accelerated the the uh, the surrender. Now, let me show you the lower lower half of the fishhook. While this was going on, Longstreet says in his memoirs that if if Pickett's charge was successful, he was ready to spring to the attack with, with Hood's division and McClaw's division, and they would have attacked the, the shaft of the fishhook. Why? To pin them in place so that they can't go north and rescue this half of the Union Army. And indeed, Meade sent his only reserve, the Sixth Corps under Sedgwick, behind, down here they were behind Little Round Top, because most of the fighting on day two had been in this area when Longstreet had made his massive attack. Now, if they'd made this frontal attack, they'd have pinned this half in place. There were two brigades from Anderson's division, which is up here, who were down here located with, this, with the Confederate artillery. When Pickett's Charge was launched, uh, Wilcox, and it was the brigades of Wilcox and Lang's small Florida brigade, the, Wilcox got the order to attack straight to his front, not to join Pickett's Charge, but to attack straight to the front, and not to, not to... Uh, try to go through the line, but simply to engage the Union soldiers on the line. Why? That was their part of the pinning attack. McLaws and Hood's didn't launch theirs because Pickett's Charge was not met by what we now know would have been Stewart's Cavalry, but Wilcox and Lyon didn't get the word, so they attacked straight to their front and were badly bloodied. No one ever understood why they did that, why they attacked to their front rather than joining Pickett's Charge, or why they attacked at all. But clearly it was part of Lee's pinning attack of the southern half of the of the shaft of the
0: fishhook. Didn't Lee ever sit down and say, "Well, this is what I was trying to do at Gettysburg."
1: No, but he wouldn't have done that because the failure, as, as I will show you for this for this to occur, was because George Armstrong Custer, the youngest general in the Union Army, 23 years of age, had stopped the Confederate column under Stuart, Jeb Stuart, in, in fact, the ultimate the ultimate act was to engage a Confederate column of about 4,000 men who was trying to get down to Bonnetown Road. He stopped them with 400 men from the 1st Michigan uh, reg- uh, Cavalry Regiment with a suicidal kamikaze-like attack that stopped them, at which point the 5th, 6th, and 7th Michigan, his other regiments, remounted and attacked the flank of the column, and part of the 1st in New Jersey and 3rd Pennsylvania attacked the left side of the column. The column's movement dissolved into a... In whirling circles of pistol and saber fights, and Stuart realized he couldn't get there in time. 20 minutes, half an hour later, the signal for him to come down, by the way, I'm sorry, was the end of the cannonade. Before Pickett's Charge was launched, Lee made a two-hour cannonade of the Union clump of trees and some and the, and the Cemetery Hill with 125 cannon. And then he stopped the cannon fire before the attack, and l- the message would have been to Stuart: when the cannonade ends, you've got 20 to 30 minutes, to get down Bonnetown Road, up the Baltimore Pike, and across the Fishhook. Could he have made that? Well, yeah, that's probably four or five miles. He could have done that mostly at a trot. But he did not have time to stop and fight. He'd been fighting with Custer's troops earlier in East Calvary Field. He'd, been, he'd tried to drive them off by dismounting Jenkins' cavalry and firing on them as infantry. Normally, in the Civil War era, when infantry fired on cavalry, cavalry would simply ride away because they weren't armed to fight infantry. Instead, Custer dismounted the 5th Cavalry. They were armed with a Spencer repeating rifle, not carbines, and they engaged uh, the 34th Battalion, really, which was men of Jenkins' Brigade, and quite a, quite a storm of infantry fire went back and forth. Eventually, the 1st Virginia Cavalry weighed in and, and drove the 5th Michigan back, and Stewart countered with the 7th Michigan on a line of squadrons, a wide line. And then there was a pause, and both sides withdrew. There was there was probably 20 minutes of nothing going on where where both sides glared at each other and then the cannonade ended. As soon as the cannonade ended, a column of the brigades, the three brigades that Stuart had taken around the Union Army, those commanded by by Wade Hampton, Fitzhugh Lee, and Colonel Chambliss, Rooney Lee's brigade, came out of the the, the trees in Rummel's Farm and in a column of squadrons. That is, cavalry was used in in organiz, in a structure known as squadrons, which is two companies, 200 men, with a 20-man front and they're 10 10 men deep so that they're a square. Horses are longer than they are wide. Seen from above, it looks like a checkerboard. If you want to attack, you get a line of these squadrons side-by-side, and they can sweep a wide area of the field, but they're very difficult to control. If you want to move someplace, you get a column of squadrons, and that's what came out of the woods, led by Wade, Wade Hampton. As they moved south on, on East Cavalry Field, the first Union troops they came against were the 1st New Jersey and the 3rd Pennsylvania, which were the only part of Gregg's division that was left on the field, and they quickly pulled back into the woods. And as they got past them, they had less than half a mile to go. The only force between them and Bonnetown Road was the 1st Michigan, down on the southwest corner of the field. Custer was over at the 7th on the west side, and they were... They were they were kind of scrambled and many of them were dismounted. There's a lot of confusion. They'd been fought out Custer jumped on his horse raced to the back of the first Michigan took off his hat so they could see his yellow hair Raised his saber and said come on you Wolverines and started trotting north As they got closer Wade Hampton no doubt thought that they're gonna do the same thing the first New Jersey and third Pennsylvania did They're gonna pull out in the woods because we outnumber them ten to one instead Custer raised his saber again, dug in his spurs, shouted, and they smashed into the front of the Confederate column. That stopped the column. It's like a railroad train with cars sequentially. And then the 5th, 6th, and 7th mission had attacked the right flank of the column. Some of the 1st New Jersey and 3rd Pennsylvania attacked the left side of the column, and the forward momentum was stopped. When the cannonade opened up again 20 minutes later, half an hour later, that was the Union guns firing on Pickett's men as they reached the middle of the field, Stewart knew it was too late. He couldn't get there in time. Because he didn't get up behind Culp's Hill, the the frontal attack by Ewell's 7 Brigades on Culp's Hill to roll up the Union right wing never occurred because the triggering event would have been been Stewart's arrival. And he didn't go across the fishhook and meet Pickett's men as they came through the clump of trees. And Pickett's men were badly slaughtered by the cannons and the rifles that that he, Stewart, would have either knocked out or taken over had he
0: arrived. So, so your theory is that the, the battle turned out the way it did because of what happened at East Cavalry Field? Absolutely. And why didn't
1: Lee say this later? You asked me earlier. I'm sorry, I forgot that. Well, first of all, uh, as James McPherson says in the foreword, success has, has a thousand fathers and failures an orphan. When he failed in that high-risk flank attack, there was no gain, nothing to be gained by announcing that to the Southerners that he'd tried and failed, and it would have been an enormous psychological boost to the Union Army. So he did nothing. The after-action reports for the Confederate cavalry, there were 32 after-action reports, and only two of them was East Cavalry Field mentioned. Uh, that, those were the, 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 re, the 30-page report of Jeb Stuart devoted for the, for the Gettysburg campaign, the beginning of June to the end of July. The 30-page the, the uh, Jeb Stewart report had two pages on East Cavalry Field. The five-page Hampton report had a half page on East Cavalry Field. In both, in, in, in both cases, in both reports, they admitted that they, were, they, were, they had wanted to turn the Union right and attack the Union in the rear. But Lee never announced that it wasn't my fault that Gettysburg was lost, it was Jeb Stewart's fault, because he would never project that on someone else. He said and he believed that his most important work was planning. And then when he gives the orders to the subordinates, it's in God's hands. And this, call this a fluke, call this a, a, an act of, 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 of uh, chance, call this God intruding on the battlefield, call it whatever you want. stopped—I'm uh, sorry Custer stopped Stuart and kept him from dividing the Union army
0: in, in half and defeating it in detail. When, when Lee came up with a plan like this, did he make it up on the spot? I mean, did, how, well, did he have a no, map that, no. to well, show sure. where he everybody had, he was? He had just... maps.
1: But he had a wealth of knowledge of military history. When he was, he graduated from West Point in 1829, sorry, 1829. And while he was at West Point, I've got records of all the books he used, the courses he took, and he was a, a fervent student of military history he also acquired a number of, of military history books that were his personal library that he took with him and one of the most important was Jomini's uh, La de la Guerre, which is a classic uh, uh, book in French that he took with him sort of like his personal bible and he studied it was the, an account of Napoleon's wars and the Napoleonic Wars and when Lee was the superintendent at West Point from 1852 to 1855 uh, he was a strong force behind promoting the study of the great captains in history by cadets and he also befriended Jeb Stuart who graduated in 1854 Jeb Stuart used to come with Lee's son George Washington Custis Lee to Lee's house and visit him and they became friends in 1859 when Harper's Ferry was attacked by John Brown Lee was put was sent in command of a company of marines to rescue or to 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 uh, take, take the, the Harpers Ferry, actually it was a garage, take it back, and the aide that went with him was Jeb Stuart. Jeb Stuart was his most trusted cavalry leader throughout the Civil War and he, he provided valuable support to Lee throughout the war, and Lee would never have turned on him and say, I lost the Battle of Gettysburg because of Jeb Stuart, particularly because Jeb Stuart was killed at Yellow Tavern ten months later while, while fighting for the Confederacy and he was killed by a man in the 5th Cavalry Regiment, which was part of Custer's command. Not so coincidentally. Was being in the cavalry
0: kind of the sexiest job
1: of the army? Yeah, sure, it probably was, but being in the cavalry in in that era, uh, cavalry was used in the Civil War in primarily in its light cavalry mode. That is, cavalry had been used in Europe for 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 eons. And and the traditional use of cavalry during the Napoleonic Wars period and up to the the War of 1870 between France and Prussia was to use two types of cavalry. Light cavalry was used for reconnaissance, to screen infantry forces, to attack retreating infantry, or to turn the flanks and attack infantry from the side or in the rear. Heavy cavalry normally wore armored uh, uh, chest plates body armor, and, a, and a steel steel uh, armor, and a steel helmet, and they carried great sabers. They were on enormous horses, and when five or 6,000 of them came thundering across a battlefield, they were an unstoppable mass, and they were used as an attack mass, which routinely destroyed uh, whatever confronted them. Now, uh, the United States, neither the North or the South in the Civil War, used cavalry in that in that way, primarily because of a lack of horse, of, 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 available horses. And secondly, because early in the war, the Union Army was terribly ill-equipped with cavalrymen. They had very few men who could ride. And so, Jeb Stuart, who led the Confederate Army, became known as Jeb Stuart and his Invincibles because they literally rode around the Union Army three times. Uh, during, uh, but, but And and this, of course, was a glory case in all the newspapers, North and South, and and Stuart and the South thrived on that. They loved it, so they kept repeating it. By the summer of 1863, uh, the spring and summer, the Union cavalry had gotten down to a hard nut. That is, the weak and the sick had fallen away. These men had learned how to ride and how to fight, and they were fully the equal of the Confederate cavalry. I think it's fair to say. They had never yet defeated... The Confederates, but at Brandy Station they came close. It was a draw. 11,000 Union soldiers and 9,000 Confederates, and eventually the Union withdraw, but it was a very near thing for the Confederates. So only weeks later, now there were other smaller cavalry fights at Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville as the Confederate force moved north up the, the Shenandoah Valley and crossed the Potomac. And when they moved into Pennsylvania, there were several other cavalry clashes, but nothing of the scale of what occurred on, on East Cavalry Field
0: now uh, when when Stuart got the orders to go kind of around the back door and was going through East Cavalry Field yeah. how did Custer's cavalry happen to be there at the time I mean, well uh, two cavalry yeah, running into each now, other in you have to understand
1: of... there are no orders from Lee for this to happen because he didn't put his orders in, his orders in writing there are there are there are lines from order from after action reports of of, of uh, Stewart and of Hampton, one of his brigade commanders. But uh, among the thirty other reports, there was no mention of East Cavalry Field by Confederate cavalry leaders, and the Union on the, on the other uh, on the other hand, there were seventeen reports by Union cavalry leaders about the fight on East Cavalry Field. So clearly, Lee suppressed the orders. He didn't want to acknowledge that there had been any significant fight there. In letters after the war, one of his other Brigade Commanders, Fitz Lee, announced, said that they had intended to go around the Union right right into the rear. But how did the two Cavalries find each other? Well, uh, uh, the orders for the Union Cavalry that morning had been for Kilpatrick's division, which included two brigades, those of Farnsworth and Custer, to cover the Union left f- flank, and for uh, Gregg, who had also had two brigades, to cover the right flank. When they... When Greg started to move north, Howard, who was a corps commander on Cemetery Hill, signaled to them that he saw a large body of horsemen riding out the York Pike, and he thought they were gonna to try to get around the Union right. And in fact, that was two of, of uh, uh, Stewart's brigades. He'd left Hampton and, and Fitzley out near, j- north of York Pike, but he had to bring Chambliss and Jenkin out of town. So there were probably 3,000 horsemen that moved out, out the Pike. And when that word got through Pleasanton, the Union cavalry commander, got to Greg, to Greg, he said, hey, give me some support. Please give me another brigade so that I can cover the right flank. He had about 2,500, 2,400 men, Greg. Custer was assigned to, or, to, or actually, uh, Greg was given authority to, to take uh, Custer north with him, and he did. And when they got north to the Hanover Road at the bottom of East Cavalry Field, Uh, Greg uh, sent one of his brigades off to be a picket line back to the Union right, which was useless. He he said he held them in reserve, but they were stretched out over open country. And he sent one of the three regiments, the first Maryland, off to be a a right flank guard, even though Custer had already spent part of his 6th Cavalry to do that. So he was left with only two regiments and the Parnell Legion, about 80 men on the field, about 600 men and Custer's 1,800 men. Greg, in his after-action report, claimed all the credit for the battle. And he said that you know uh, Mac, that his brigade commanders, McIntosh and Greg were, were heroic and magnificent, and Custer ably assisted me. But when you look at the Butcher's Bill, 219 out of the 253 casualties on East Cavalry Field the Union suffered were suffered by Custer's unit. There were only 36 casualties suffered by, by Greg, and none of them were fatalities. So you have Custer harsh words for Greg hill. in there. Well, Greg, that's classic. After the after action, he sought to avoid confronting uh, Stuart because Stewart and his invinci- invincibles are going to come storming down with 6,000 men, and Greg doesn't want to get run over by them. So what does he do? He sends off most of his men and leaves Custer there to take responsibility. When Custer gets trampled, it'll be Custer who, who, who lost the battle. But instead, when Custer defeated Stewart, Greg jumped in front of him and tried to claim credit for it. And, and that's, that happens all the time in the Civil War and in all wars. Uh, and I, I, I talk about Oates and Chamberlain, a, a famous controversy on, on, of infantry on Little Round Top in there, where both of them also, Chamberlain said he captured 400 Confederates and Oates in his after action report the next morning said that he only had 90 missing, which included dead and grievously wounded. So somebody's telling a lie. Well, you know, it, probably Chamberlain was inflating his numbers because that's classic. That's what they all did. And here, Greg is trying to take credit for, for what Custer did. But it's only when you look at the details, like the butcher's bill, how many casualties were suffered that you understand who did the fighting.
0: Can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, what do you do for a living? I write books. <laughs> really? time? Full-time, full-time Yeah. Games. Well,
1: uh, yes. I, I, I've done a lot of things. I, I went to West Point. Uh, I uh, was an infantry, infantry platoon leader with the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam. I was twi- wounded twice. January 24th and June 3rd, 1968. Uh, got out of the army and went to law school because it was free, vocational rehabilitation, and I thought I was gonna earn a lot of money and not do much work and play a lot of golf. Boy, did I get fooled. Being a lawyer is hard work. It's, it's, it's bone-crushing, life-draining work, I'll tell you. So, after a couple of years, I was the editor of a tax journal right out of law school in Amsterdam, which I loved. Then I worked for the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California. Then I went back to Europe and worked for the Archibald Law Firm in Brussels, representing multinational corporations in front of the common market. Eventually came home and was a small-town lawyer for a while in Amherst, Massachusetts. Then got Potomac fever and came to Washington and went to work for the Department of the Army, where I worked for 17 years as a civilian. And while I was there, I went back to graduate school. I'd written a couple of books. And I went back to graduate school and got a PhD in uh, American military history from Princeton University. Where and and you know I I I, I've sort of (laughs) I've been a a a jack of all trades, master of none, I suppose you'd say. Uh, I've this is my fifth commercial book, and I have others underway. And I also am writing a a technical book for the Department of the Army. That's how I earn my money. (laughs) They. It'll never be published, but it's something they need and they use, and I can do that. What are your
0: other four commercial books?
1: Uh, the first one was The offering. No, the first one was Battles and Campaigns in Vietnam, which is a coffee table book. 50,000 words of text, 220 photographs, uh, which talks about the war that was actually fought in Vietnam. It's, it's, it's separate from the politics of a political war in this country. Uh, the next one was my Vietnam memoir, The Offering, which was published by Morrow in 87, paperback by Warner in 88. Then I wrote uh, Iron Soldiers, which is the story of the first armored division in Desert Storm One, and um, then I wrote West Point Warriors, which was published in 19 no 2002, which is the story of 23 West Point graduates who went off to war as young men, some famous, some not. Uh, most of them, many of them, were killed in in combat. But it's the story of the most important service that West Pointers provide, I believe, which is leading men into combat as young men. Somebody's got to do it, and they're the ones who are are best trained, I believe, for that purpose.
0: Now, you talk about how Lee paid attention to what Napoleon did, and you also talk in your book about Hannibal, who was around, what, year 100, something like that?
1: 214 B.C. was the Battle of Cannae in in Italy.
0: Now, Napoleon was 50 years or so before the Battle of Gettysburg. Yes. So things probably hadn't changed a lot in that period of time, but how could a battle that had happened 2,000 years earlier be instructive to Lee about how to fight a battle in 1863?
1: Faces change, weapons change, but war remains the same. It is the heart and soul and brain of one man against another. And you do not defeat the enemy by by using your armaments, you defeat him by uh, confronting his soul. And destroying him. And it's a psychological uh, experience more than anything else. And that's why great generals, you know, Grant, before the war, was really basically run out of the army. He was incompetent, he drank too much, and he was working in a leather shop in, uh, for his, fa- his father in law, or his father, no, his father in law, and eventually he was selling firewood on the streets in St. Louis. He couldn't do anything. But a war came along, and boy, could he lead troops. He was a magnificent fighter. And there are men who are like that. Uh, the, the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, searched for a general for several years. Lincoln searched for a general who could fight and defeat Lee. And he went through McClellan, well, McClellan Pope, Burnside, Hooker, Meade. And eventually Grant came, came back and he left Meade in, in command, theoretically, of the Army of uh, the Potomac. But Grant was always with him and Grant was the power that finally ran
0: Lee to ground and defeated him. Uh, Can those tactics still be used today? I mean, do they still teach him at Napoleon at at West Point and and they can still use those kinds of tactics? Even more so
1: today because the era, for now, of major nations mobilizing their youth to fight world wars against other major nations is essentially over. Democracies, as a rule, don't fight other democracies. Now that the Soviet Union has gone up in smoke and and capitalism, if you will, free marketplace uh, economy, has... Uh, begun to grow you know the Russian people are never gonna want to send their children to fight the Americans they'll send their MasterCard why should they risk their lives and it was only these authoritarian or military dictatorships that that fight wars for for the acquisition of of property or, or goods or whatever but now that we have democracies there was in much of the world we will still have brush fire wars you look at you look at a map of the world in 1950 And all of South America, all of Africa, all of Asia was controlled by authoritarian or military dictatorships. Today, except Costa Rica, today, all of Latin America has, and all of the Pacific Rim, China is not a democracy, but it has a free market economy. And eventually, uh, uh, democracy will follow because it has to. That's the, the sequence, that's why, that's how people act. So, you know, we've made some dramatic sweeping changes during the era of the Cold War that are not entirely connected to the Cold War. It's rather an economic uh, reality that has e- sort of erupted in, in, in uh, different societies. But we will still have brush f- fire wars like we have now in Iraq. And for those operations, you're not going to lead divisions of tanks, but you need small unit leaders who can fight other small unit leaders and defeat them. And Napoleonic tactics are h- highly appropriate.
0: You say in here, uh, Lee did speak to his men's souls throughout the war and for the rest of his days. All the men who served under his command simply adored him as indeed did many of his adversaries. What was it about Lee that, it was that magic. what did he have?
1: I don't know. He was, you know, you, you wonder, he was almost an enlightened man. He, he was such a brilliant man and his military brilliance speaks from the Mexican War through the Civil War. Uh, he is Faulted primarily today because of the third day at Gettysburg. And and this really dumb move of launching pickets charged by 13,000 of his men while the other 52,000 sat and watched less than 20% of his force against the heart of the Union defenses after a two-hour artillery bombardment across an open field a mile wide, and they were slaughtered. Why did he do that? Well, it was really a bad move. Most historians have said he had a very bad day. I've discovered, I believe, what his manoeuvre sur les derrières, his flank attack and his full plan was, and that was to attack it. Pickett's charge was in large measure a distraction because while it was, they were coming across the field, every eye inside the fish hook was locked on them. If they succeeded, Lee's myth of invincibility is proven true once again. He intended at the same time for Stewart to come racing up the Baltimore Pike roll up the right wing with Ewell's 10,000 men, come across the fishhook and and hit the clover trees in the rear, divide the Union army in half, and defeat it in detail. It was a brilliant idea, but it's his brilliance, not mine.
0: Now, your book has an introduction by James McPherson, Pulitzer Prize-winning Civil War historian. Um, What does he think of your theory, and what do other historians think of your theory? Well, as he says, uh, the last lines in the... He says
1: why don't we know this? Why why haven't we known this before? And he said, some of us have known it. We knew that Ewell was supposed to attack on the third day, but didn't. But we never understood how the cavalry fight at East Cavalry Field was connected to the larger battle at Gettysburg. And then he said that from my experience as a military historian and as a combat officer, I have been able to piece together the the, the evidence and and valid inference of what happened and show the plan as it was and, and he said, uh, "It seems impossible with all the vast amount of things. No, with the vast amount that have been that has been written by, about Gettysburg, it seems impossible that someone would, could come up with new information and insight into the battle. But Tom Carhart has done it. That's that's that's." That's as, 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 as nice a plot as I could hope for. Have
0: you talked to other historians who think you're full of baloney?
1: No. Well, there will always, look, there will always be cynics who will say, no, you're crazy. Lee intended Pickett's charge to be the only charge. It was a good idea. But you're always going to find those people. But I've gotten plaudits from John Keegan who said, Tom Carhart shines a new light on the grandest battle of the Civil War, a remarkable achievement for any military historian. And he also told me he's going to use my information or my, 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 my uh, ideas in the book, he's now writing about the U.S. Civil War. I've, I've gotten approval from Rick Atkinson, who gave me a very strong uh, plaudits, f- who, who won a Pulitzer Prize in 2003 for an Army at Dawn. I've gotten good blurbs from, from a whole array of, of military historians. Gabor Barrett, the director of the Civil War Institute at, at Gettysburg, uh, Gettysburg College. Uh, uh, Jay Winnick, who, who wrote... Uh, uh, the tel- April 1865 or something he's a Civil War star now, a, a, a large, I've got about 14 plaudits I can only use 3 or 4 of them here <laughs> uh, I'm very pleased with the reaction what the reaction has been
0: So uh, somebody else you talk about in the book who has been controversial coming out of the battle is Longstreet Yeah. and you paint a picture of him essentially ignoring what Lee told him to do
1: well people say a criticism of my idea and I have talked to this with a lot of people one, one of the main criticisms is, why didn't Longstreet know Longstreet was his lieutenant? He wrote a lot about the Civil War after the war and he never said anything about it, so you're full of baloney. Well, what happened with Longstreet was in the evening of day one, around 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Longstreet and Lee met on Seminary Ridge. And looking at the Union defenses across the open field and that were being established along Seminary, Cemetery Ridge, uh, Lee said that he was going to find a way to attack him the next day. And Longstreet said, General, if you if he's, if he's there tomorrow, it'll be because you want him to attack him. We should move to the south, and you should do what you promised, that is, a strategic offensive but a tactical defensive. When we find the enemy, we establish a strong defense and make him attack us as we did at Fredericksburg. And Lee said, No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to attack him there. And then the next day was the second day where, where Longstreet launched a much-delayed attack at about four in the afternoon, the fighting lasted till about six against the lower end of the shaft of the fish hook and Little Round Top. Now much much has been, because of Chamberlain's brilliance as a writer, uh, he talked about how the 20th Maine saved the Union, but they fought the 15th Alabama, and there were one brigade, um, there was, that was one regiment, there were five regiments in the Union Brigade, five regiments in the Confederate Brigade, and that's who fought on Little Round Top. During those two hours, there were maybe four or 500 casualties. During the same two hours, in the peach field and the and I'm sorry the peach orchard and the wheat field between five and eight thousand men went down. That's where the real fighting was. But they had no story. They, they had no great storyteller to, to tell their so tale. So
0: the the image we have of uh, of the 20th Maine is it and uh, yeah. Chamberlain yeah. that from the ba- the movie Gettysburg sure. and Killer Angels. Oh, it's inflated. Was, it's inflated. But
1: it's inflated. But you know he was a. He was a professor of rhetoric before the war. And he was later the governor of Maine. But for that matter, Oates was a lawyer and he became the governor of Alabama. Both of them were major figures in their home states. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Chamberlain said he captured 400 Confederates. Oates said he only had 90 men missing. <laughs> Where, where's the truth lie? So that happens all the time in war. But let me get back to Longstreet. After the fight on, on day two, Longstreet ordinarily rode every night to Lee and reported. That night, he did not ride up to him, but he sent a courier with a message that, you know, we fought out and we're, we're ready to go, and Lee sent the courier back with an order for him to start the attack again at dawn. He sent the same message to Ewell at the bottom of Culp's Hill. At dawn, Ewell got into a fight with the returning 12th Corps on, on top of and around Culp's Hill, so Lee heard the gunfire from there, but he heard nothing from Longstreet's position. So he rode down there. When he approached Longstreet, as he was getting off his horse, Longstreet said, General, I've had my scouts out all night. We found a wonderful defensive position to the south, and I've given orders to my divisions to move there. And Lee said, he pointed at Cemetery Hill and said, The enemy is there, and I will fight him. And Longstreet said, and I'm sure he said this, or words to this effect, he says it three different times in his his memoir, or in, in different things that he wrote after the war. He said, General, I've been a commander... At all, uh, all my life, I've commanded at the company, regiment, brigade, division, corps level. If anyone can know what soldiers can do, it is I. And no 15,000 men man will ever get across that field. Lee responded, prepare Pickett's division for the attack. Now, I believe at that moment, first of all, when he didn't, he, he, they had quite an argument. It was a loud controversy on, on, on the, the afternoon of, of 1 July. Longstreet was sulking. He didn't report to Lee on the evening of, of July 2nd, and his, his attack was hours late on July 2nd. And on the third, when Lee rode down and found him not only not obeying his orders to attack at dawn, but doing something that would not only was not only disobedient, but would have frustrated Lee's plans for the army, that was a highly irregular and, and, and uh, action by a subordinate. And I believe that Lee then, at least for the short term, lost his confidence in, in Longstreet. He did not share the attack by the cavalry in the rear because given what had happened when he ordered him to attack again at dawn, how he'd, he'd, he had ordered his, his division to do something else, if he'd told him that, Longstreet might have done something to frustrate Lee, Lee's plan. So Lee didn't tell him. And it didn't matter what Longstreet knew. Once his men broke through and they were met by Stewart's men, they'd have just moved north and, and attacked the, the unit. It didn't matter that Longstreet knew ahead of time that they were to be met. And Longstreet whined all through this that they're never going to get there across because he didn't know they were to be met. Was Lee then the only person who knew the whole picture? Oh, Lee certainly would have told, in addition to Stewart, he would have told Ewell uh, and probably Johnson, who was the division commander that was... Built up from three divisions to, or three brigades to seven,
0: but they never wrote it down or told. No, it but
1: McClellan, who was uh, Henry McClellan, Major Henry McClellan was. This
0: is a different McClellan than the yeah, Union general. Yeah, he was a McClellan. cousin of George McClellan. He was. He went oh. to
1: Williams College and then moved south and married a Southern girl and fought for the South. Oh. It's An amazing family story. Uh, when Henry McClellan wrote a book called "I Rode with Jeb Stuart" after the war, and in that book he reveals that he too knew several times that Lee's that, law, that Stuart's orders. And his intention were to to move around the Union right wing to make an attack that would support uh, Pickett's charge on the clump of trees and would allow them to hold it. And and several times he said, and he also said it was evident after the war because of the Union cavalry we never could have turned the Union right wing. Well, that was their intention, but no one, you know, Stuart Lee never wrote it down because he didn't write letters orders like that down. The example, the parallel is Chancellorsville, where he told Jackson to make this wide. Uh, a flank attack around the Union right wing, but no one witnessed that except Colonel Marshall, who was his aide, and a couple of other staff officers when Lee met Jackson alone. And Jackson said, no, that's wrong, they won't be there tomorrow. And Lee convinced him eventually to make the attack, showed him on a map where to go down the, the, the furnace road and, and so on. And the next morning, Jackson made the attack. After the Civil War, none of the historians, particularly the, 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 the writers of Southern Review, a periodical, knew that Lee had ordered this, and they thought that Jackson had done it on his own. And Lee wrote a letter to Jackson's wife, which was one of the two times that he talked about the war in letters, and he said, no one could be more respectful and, and greater admiration of your husband than I, but to let this stand is to show the record wrongly, and your husband was tar- far too good a soldier to have allowed this to happen. He knew that nothing that a subordinate does can be done unless it's with, uh, under the orders of the Army commander, because he's got to control the whole Army. And, and, and then Lee said, I was there, I was at the front, I gave the order, if it had failed, I'd have taken the responsibility. When it succeeded, I was happy to let Jackson take the, take the, the, the glory. And, and, and that's the sort of man that he was. He was a very selfless, self-effacing individual, and a very admirable man.
0: I want to talk a little bit more, or have you talk a little bit more, about the person <laughs> who's actually, the, I guess, the hero of your book. If it's not Oh-oh." howard yeah. who noticed the uh... mature true
1: troops confederate troops moving out baltimore Park. it
0: would be george armstrong custer who you point out is widely known he finished last of his graduating class from west point he was ranked thirty-fourth out of thirty four graduates yes but it is important to remember that he started as one of seventy nine members of the class and during the four years, 22 resigned to join the Confederacy, while 23 fell by the wayside, most of them for academic reasons. Sure. So, he,
1: he did enough to get by academically because he didn't care about how well he did academically. He only wanted those gold bars. He wanted to be a soldier. He wanted to be a cavalryman. And it happened that when he graduated, there was a big war going on. He, was, he showed such remarkable courage as a lieutenant and a captain working for the Union Army first in the Seven Days and, and uh, later under McClellan, that he quickly was promoted to captain. And then just before the Union Army moved north into to follow Lee into Pennsylvania, the Battle of Brandy Station had occurred where, where Custer had had led had actually led when a colonel was killed. He had led a New York regiment and then a brigade. And Pleasant and the Union Cavalry commander saw this and he was magnificent. Now as they moved into Pennsylvania, Hooker was replaced by Meade, and Meade wanted to shake the army up. Pleasanton was his cavalry commander, and Pleasanton said, look, I want to get rid of some of these political appointees, these generals who are there for political reasons and are not fighters, and I've got three young men that I want to make generals. And they were Farnsworth, Merritt, and Custer. Custer was 23 years old, and that day he, he, he found a, a, a general's uniform of black velvet and gold braid, and and uh... he was allowed to pick his own uniform yeah all general, generals normally were and that was not unusual to have a lot of braid in the civil war but he was modeling himself after marshal murat who was napoleon's great cavalry leader who always adorned himself in bright colors and gold braid so that he could be seen in battle by his men and that's what custer did he said i want to be seen at the center leading the charge i'm not in the back sending my couriers forward or sending you know follow my tracer that was not his his style First, he would also oh, be
0: seen by the other guys
1: yeah, that's right. And he took that risk. Uh, he had uh, five or six or seven horses shot out from under him in
0: the Civil War. Who knows? Several in, in the Battle of at Gettysburg. At least one in East Cavalry Field. Were there people with Custer at uh, Gettysburg who were also with him at Little Bighorn?
1: I don't think so. Because it was still the, called the Seventh Cavalry. No, it was the, no the Seventh Cavalry. This is the Seventh Michigan Regiment, Cavalry Regiment from Michigan. Oh. they were volunteers. The the soldiers who were at Little Bighorn were, they're much, completely different soldiers. They're not volunteers who were eagerly fighting for their country who get uh, get out of the army and go back to their normal jobs after the war. These are men who filled the ranks. There were a lot of immigrants. There were a lot of there were quite a few veterans of the Civil War who couldn't make it in the outside. There were some 'er ne'er-do-wells who the judge said join the army or go to jail. There were a lot of people running from women, from trouble, to join the army and go out to the west. A lot of them were looking for a free ride to the California gold gold mines. And in fact, in 1876, no, 1868, there were about 800 men in the 7th U.S. Cavalry. They had over 500 desertions that year alone. So desertion was a major problem. They were not at all the great soldiers that... The hardened soldiers of, that Custer had in the summer of 1863.
0: How many times have you been to Gettysburg? Many.
1: <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know.
0: A lot. When you go to a place like the Angle at Gettysburg and stand there and look out, what do you think about? Well,
1: that's not fair because I think different things than most people would, because I've 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 been blooded, and I think about those young men and I know what they were facing and I know the turmoil of here comes death and I'm gonna stand here and I'm gonna die or I'm gonna live but I'm gonna do my duty. That's what most of them did and a lot of them died. You have to realize that if a man was hit by a bullet in the head or in the body he's gonna die if not from the blow to his head from the infection because we had no antibiotics. If he was hit in the arm or the leg almost always the arm or leg was amputated and in the Civil War about 50 percent of amputees died of shock that's how that's how Jackson died. He had his right arm amputated, and a, a week or ten days later, he got pneumonia and died from the sequelae to the to the amputation. Uh, medicine was a was a very tenuous uh, science in those days, and most men in both sides were very fatalistic. They were fighting for their army or for their country, and if they died, they were willing to die. Most of them were profound Christians, uh, not all, but most were, and. That was an important solace to them because death was so sudden and so immediate and so unpredictable. They had to have some secure uh, reservoir of hope and something beyond that.
0: Who would you like to have talked to of the people who were involved with the battle?
1: Oh, Lee, Lee is the great giant. Lee is, now that I know his plan at Gettysburg, Lee is the great giant of American military history. He's the greatest general we ever produced. But he was so self-effacing and so selfless that he never would have escaped the, the, the responsibility for the defeat at Gettysburg by pointing or projecting it to Stewart or anyone else. When his soldiers came back from Pickett's Charge, he said to them, it's all my fault, it's all my fault. But it wasn't, though he was willing to take the hit. That night when he met Imboden, who returned from Pennsylvania countryside and had no idea what had happened during the day, Uh, uh, Imboden said to him, and it's about midnight, he said, General, this has been a very bad day for you. And And Lee said, yes, it has been a very sad day. And then he said, when Pickett made his charge, I'm approximating the words, I've never seen them behave so magnificently as they did. And had they been supported, which they were not for reasons not yet revealed to me, they would have held the position and the day would have been ours. Okay, now what did he mean by that? He didn't mean support Pickett's men; his three his, his three divisions or three brigades would have been supported by the other uh, 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 six brigades in the attack because they were. They all got across the field. He didn't mean artillery because Lee ordered the artillery stopped before he ran out of ammunition. What else did he mean for supported? Well, obviously, he means if Stuart had come up behind them and cut them in half, and and Ewell had rode up the rolled up the right flank, Anderson Hood uh, Anderson. Uh, Pender, uh, Rhodes, and Early, two, two brigades of Penders and three of Andersons, had attacked frontally, they'd have, they'd have crushed the Union army and there would have been rapid mass surrenders. And in that event, the, the, the ebullient Confederate army of Northern Virginia would have been poised above Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington with nothing between them and the nation's capital. There would have been a quick armistice followed by a peace, which would have allowed the Southern Confederacy to exist as a separate state, which is why they came into Pennsylvania. It is known that Lee sought a triumphant war-ending battle in Pennsylvania, and this is what he wanted. It was not just Pickett's charge. Could Lee have won the war without going north? I don't know. I don't know. That's one of those what-ifs. Uh, you know, there, there there, are a lot of probably Northern Virginia in particular was so threadbare by that time that... As I've said, he, couldn't, he not only couldn't feed his men, he couldn't even feed his horses. And that sounds funny, but men eat food. Horses can eat grass, but there's no grass left. There's nothing. The, the, the fields are bare. Uh, and, and so he had to go somewhere. Uh, and also, if he could win a victory in the North, Pennsylvania, which is beyond Maryland. Maryland was a slave state, remember, although they didn't secede. But Pennsylvania is the true north, north of the Mason-Dixon line. If he can go into Pennsylvania, the heartland of the north, and win a battle, that would be a psychological blow to the north that would, from which they couldn't have recovered, I think. The people couldn't have recovered. They'd have said enough peace. The, 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 the Democrats who, who wanted peace would have carried the day. Uh, McClellan would have been elected president in 1864. And uh, who knows how long that would have lasted? No one. <laughs> You and I don't you... want to go there because the right side won. You know, I mean, I, 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 clearly it was. Uh, I don't know what was going on, but but this is the only out acceptable outcome that the North would have won. You said you have a couple more books in the works. Yeah, what I don't they... want—they're fragile. I don't want to say what they are. I, I'm, I'm working on other military history books, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of books have been written about a lot of things. I'm going to write my version of a couple of things, that, which will be revisionist. This is revisionist history. I do not accept the normal revealed wisdom that Lee risked it all on, on a, 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 a silly attack across an open field by less than 20% of his men into the heart of the Union defenses.
0: This is the book we've been talking about, Lost Triumph, Lee's Plan at Gettysburg and Why It Failed. Tom Carhart, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.